Welcome to episode five of the History of Metal Blade podcast, brought to you by Vinyl Me Please and Revolver Magazine. I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and today we're deep into the first decade of the 2000s with Swedish death metal masters Amon Amarth and LA heavy metal legends Armored Saint. In the top half of the show, we'll catch up with Amon Amarth guitarist Johan Soderberg to talk about one of the band's biggest records, Twilight of the Thunder God. This was Amon Amarth's seventh album, but it was the one that really cemented their status as the kings of Viking death metal when it was released in 2008. Then we'll link up with Armored Saint vocalist John Bush to talk about the band's 2010 comeback album, La Rasa. But first, let's head over to Sweden to speak with Johan Soderberg about Twilight of the Thunder God, an album that features guest appearances from members of Entombed, Children of Bodom and Apocalyptica, not to mention one of Amon Amarth's most popular songs. Let's start at the beginning then. Tell me about the period, what you remember about the period coming out of With Odin on Our Side, going into Twilight of the Thunder God. What was kind of the atmosphere in the band at that time when you were starting to think about writing a new album? If I remember correctly, I thought we, thought we had a really good uh, you know, no, notion of, of the future and uh, around that time because With Odin on Our Side was... Uh, very successful album for us and that was the first album we we worked with a real producer as well so we actually we were super happy with the sound of that album and how everything came out on the on another side so that's why we went back to the same guy again for Twilight of the Thundergard and we also felt all the songs we wrote for this album was like the best we ever written pretty much yeah, what do you remember about the writing process for those songs? Anything anything stick out to you? Yeah, I mean, back then we still had the rehearsal place and everybody was jamming in the rehearsal place usually. We made usually our song ideas at home, but when, then we got together like four times a week and uh, learned the songs and uh, did some arrangements on the songs and stuff like that. And the vibe was really good, I remember. Yeah, we came up with really cool stuff, like uh, Guardians of Asgard, for example. We That was a really funny writing experience when we wrote that song. And then, so you go into uh, Fascination Street Studios in Stockholm with uh, with Jens uh, Bolgren again, uh, same producer as with Odin yeah. on your but, side. Yeah, it's not in Stockholm, it's in Örebro, it's called. Ah, okay, okay. And it's like uh, two hours outside Stockholm. Uh, so you're two hours outside of Stockholm. You're with Jens Bogren again, uh, who, who produced um, with Odin on your side as well. What, do you remember anything about the recording process? Yeah, totally. Because we all stayed in his, that, then he had this really big studio. It was an old barn that was remodeled into a studio. So it was really big, everything. Everybody had their own rooms, and we all stayed there the whole recording process, pretty much. I think it was in the summer as well, actually. So we, we were, like, barbecuing and just hanging out in the studio. Had a r- nice time. Now, this is the first time that you guys really had guest musicians on an album. You've got uh, LG from Entombed, uh, Rupe from Children of Bodom, yeah. uh, the, a few people, like, three-quarters of Apocalyptica. 
what now why did you guys decide to sort of open it up a little bit instead of just keeping the performances among the band members i think we just thought let's do something new that we never tried before you know so that's why the idea came up let's have a guest musician on one of the tracks and then when we were working on that idea then like, like let's have more guest musicians you know <laughs> just throw in a bunch in there just for just for fun pretty much and uh so why so i think the first one we was uh, the first one was lg from entombed he was like the only guy that we actually thought like yeah this song we're gonna have a uh, two vocalists like battling it out on the guardians of the asgard track and then i think uh, the rope solo just came out like uh, twilight of thunder guys need to have a ripping solo so that's why the idea came up to just let's ask uh, Roper from Children of Bob. And then the Pertu from Apocalyptica. I think that was uh, Jens Bogren. He came up with the idea that that song, Live for the Kill, put like a string section breakdown in there. And we were like, yeah, cool. Call Apocalyptica and see if they, they want to try. It was just ideas that came up during the recording pretty much. And obviously, I mean, that idea kind of, it was a success because in the future, you guys would go on and I think Doro had a guest spot on one of your albums and uh, Messiah from Candlemass was a guest. So that kind of, that yeah. seems like this album kind of got the ball rolling as far as that went. Yeah, yeah, because we thought it was fun. And also after this album, we actually had some live performances where those people came on stage and did the, uh, guest appearances as well all of those lg he's done numerous guest appearances with us singing the goddess of oscar rope has played a solo a couple of times and uh, perto has played his uh, cello as well a couple of times so yeah we thought yes this is cool let's do some more you know you know lg is such a um seems like such an appropriate choice for a guest spot on an amana marth album because he is sort of you know uh, amongst the originators of Swedish death metal. And, you know, you guys are sort of carrying on that tradition and, and uh, sort of taking it even to even yeah. bigger places than Entomb did. He was the guy that we in the band thought of first when we wanted to have a guest spot on one song. Those ideas came up in the studio pretty much. So I understand that when you guys finished the album and had everything recorded and you were working on the sequence, that the title track was not originally intended to be the yep. first song, right? It, it was somewhere much deeper in the uh, the chronology of the album in the in the track listing. So, what what is the story there? Why did it get moved to the to the number one slot? Yeah, I think we we thought first we thought like we thought that that song was probably the best song on the album, but we didn't want to open the album with the best song. We wanted to open with something else, and then the listener should just discover, oh, there's even better songs. It's not the first song, it's not the best one. But we thought that all the songs was really good. We had a really hard time to choose which song would like be the, the single, so, so to say. And I remember Jens Bogren, he wanted the song uh, Free Will Sacrifice as an op the opener because he loved that riff in the start. Uh, he thought that was the best opening track. So he actually made the, the master, I think, the first master with that track in the as the first song and then then i think we realized like it's uh, 
it's probably a bad idea to not open the album with the best song. I don't know who came up with that idea, but so then we changed it back to let's open with the the with the Twilight or Thunder God song. That song, that title track, Twilight of the Thunder God, is still one of Amon Amarth's most popular songs. Why why do you think that is? Why do you think it's held up so well over time? I think it's mostly down to the it has a super catchy chorus, you know, that everybody can sing along the Twilight of the Thunder God. And also Guardians of Asgard is also one, still one of our most popular songs as well. I think one of the most uh, remarkable things about the album is that there's um, there's no fat on it. You know, all the songs, except for the last track, they're all in the three to four minute range. And there's no filler. I'm guessing that was a, a conscious decision. You guys did that on, on purpose, right? Yeah, I mean, we usually try to never make fillers, you know. Yeah. We'd rather have an album with, with eight songs instead of having an album with 12 songs and four fillers. Yeah. That's always been our approach, I think. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't just mean like having a filler song. I also mean like the songs themselves don't have a lot of, like each individual song doesn't have much like extra stuff on it. You know what I mean? It's very, they're very succinct and to the point. Yeah, yeah. That's something we learned when we recorded the Without the Number Five. Because that's the first time we used the producer, and he was the guy who like, hey, maybe you should not play this riff eight bars, you know. Maybe you should cut it down to four bars, and then so you, so the song pacing becomes more faster, and the listener doesn't have to wait for you know the catchy stuff. On Odin on the side, that's the first time we started to use that technique that we actually cut out small pieces of the song to make it more in the face of the listener kind of you know yeah yeah um and then after Odin on the side we, we kept that uh, approach for pretty much all our albums after that yeah and i know um obviously you know you worked with jens as we said on with odin on your side and on this album um what other kinds of things did you guys learn from working with jens Bogren? i think it was mostly that actually he the, he he told us, he learned us to rearrange the songs to make them more listener friendly. And now we have, we have, we have done lots of albums after that with other producers. But we now, since we learned that, we learned that ourselves too. So then now we, we have that approach when we write that with the, the songs. We don't make like one riff goes on for one minute, you know, without vocals. Yeah, yeah. The album comes out in uh, September of 2008, and uh, it hits number 50 on the Billboard 200 chart, uh, which is amazing for a Viking-themed death metal band, I think. Um, what did you guys yeah. think of that situation when that happened? Was that, that must have been a surprise, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, we, we had really high confidence in this album, but I'm sure we didn't have that. We probably didn't think it's going to end up that high on the list, but I mean, list positions is not something we really put so much thought into, except if it's like, like the last album was number one in Germany, for example. That's cool when it's number one, but if, if it's like 50, you know, it's nothing we really think so much about. It's like, yeah, cool, that came higher than the last one, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, did it do? Did this album do very well in Sweden as well? 
It was not not one in Sweden, and not in Germany either. I think the only two albums we had number ones in Germany is uh, the two last ones, Joms Viking and uh, Berserker. Do you have a, what's your favorite song on Twilight of the Thunder God? It is probably Twilight of the Thunder God and uh, Guardians of Asgard because those are the most fun to play live too. But I mean, there's lots of good songs. I like that uh, Free Will Sacrifice is great. Live for the Kill is great too. Yeah. So what uh, when yeah. this when this album came out, did it did it take you guys to another level? Do you think was there a, a more interest in the band, and do you feel like you were kind of um, riding a different wave? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's what I, the when the Odin on the side came out. That's also that was probably the breaking point of the band. Then when this Twilight of Thundergun came out, that just kept on rising the curve. And that's also when we started to put money into stage props and stuff. So everything was growing at the same time. You know, the stage performances, crowd was growing, everything. Is there anything you'd change about Twilight of the Thunder God, the album in general? No, I totally will leave it like this. Yeah. If there's nothing about that that I don't, uh, that I'm like, oh, fuck, we should have done it this way instead, you know. I think that that album is pretty perfect yeah yeah johan thank you so much for your time man thanks for doing that i appreciate it all right thank you let's travel from sweden all the way back to los angeles where we'll speak with armored saint vocalist john bush about the band's long relationship with metal blade records and how he and bassist Joey Vera hatched the plan for the band's 2010 comeback album, La Rasa. All right, so let's see. La Rasa came out in 2010. Uh, Armored Saint had not put out a record in 10 years at that point. The band was on hiatus for much of that time. You spent some of that time in Anthrax. What was the kind of thing that got the ball rolling for you guys to get back together and start making music again? At that time, my daughter, she had been born at the end of 2004. And so I was kind of in the mode of being dad and raising this new child that I had and first kid that I ever had. Once that happened, I didn't really think about music for a while. Of course, I'm sure Joey thought about some stuff. You know, he also is doing things with Fate's Warning and, and some of the other things that he was involved in and, and always has been involved with various projects. But Armored Saints always dear to everybody's heart in the band. And so I think his idea was, let's let's do something, but let's like keep it on the down low in terms of pressure uh, or, you know, the big, you know, we're making a record, let's just write some songs. And so, um, I, you know, I was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to write some songs. I want to write some songs. You know, I want to make music because that's what we do. Um, so we started doing it. And the cool thing about it was that at that time, we kind of didn't really have like an end game idea of what we wanted to do with this, this record. It wasn't like we said, let's make an Armored Saint record. It's going to go like this. It's going to be this style, you know here's the whole plan. It was, it was pretty uh, aloof. And so the first couple of things we wrote was 
I think the song Blues, which is like the ninth track on the record, and it was a little different. It was a little bit more rock. And I think that, again, it, we just kind of had this open mind when it came to the writing of songs, which is something that we kind of did when we started really writing songs for Symbol of Salvation. It was a little different scenario, but it was the same kind of mentality. At that time, we were dropped. And so like the future was uncertain at that time. And, and, and so we kind of started writing at it the, from the standpoint of just saying, let's do what we do and let's write songs and kind of not feel like we have these boundaries. It creates this kind of limitless perspective. And that's, and that's how that thing started. And then as time went by, you know, it's Joey, it's John, it's sounding like this. It's, it's not like we're gonna go, hey, this is a different band. It's a side project, but it happens to be these two main guys, like we're an armed saint. You know, we're not trying to pull the wool over every, anybody's eyes. And I think it's just more for internally that we thought, let's think limitless. And um, when it comes to writing, which I think has now ended up being something that's been really beneficial for Armand Saint. Yeah, I agree. Do you think at the time also that maybe the difference between the mentalities with Symbol of Salvation and La Rasa, do you think it's also you know, the accumulation of new influences over time, because obviously you're getting older, you're listening to different kinds of music and, and that stuff seeps in whether you mean it to or not, right? Absolutely, and I would embrace it. I love all the influences that, you know, the people that set us up for, you know, all the groups of the 70s, and you know, whether the rock, hard rock, metal, R&B, you know, jazz, whatever, had, those bands set us up uh, being a big influence in us and into the 80s. And then as time went by, the other cool bands that came in, you know, whether they were the Soundgardens and Alice in Chains or Faith No More's, you know, D'Angelo or, you know, whoever, you know, whatever it was that we're, I can't, I'm just throwing shit out there. I mean, um, yeah, Afghan wigs or whatever, you know, you name it. Like something that was, we're always open-minded musically to everything around us. And I think that's, you know, really important actually. All this stuff seeps into us and, it does for everybody. I mean, come on, who, who, I mean, who's, you know, how do you make music without stuff having an influence on you? Whether it's, you know, rock or like I said, blues, jazz, you name it, whatever, classical, whatever you're into, punk rock, it doesn't matter. It does affect you and it doesn't, it does kind of like motivate you in some ways subliminally and directly. So yeah, I mean, I think all that was happening, um, you know, heck, I mean, it's it's fair to say that happened to Anthrax when I joined, you know, the same kind of theory, you know, it's like things were changing and you're not, you're not saying, oh, look at the change, let's go be part of it. It's, but it's, I, I think that would be a little bit more, um, it would be uh, uh, you know, too forced, but to let things influence you and go, this is cool and I like this, and let's see how it affects me as a writer or a musician. I think that's great and that's very normal. So I think that, um, you know, I'm sure that happened with Saint. It was a long period of time, even if you throw in Revelation, which was a different scenario because I was still technically in Anthrax and I think we made a record, but we knew it wasn't gonna be for real. You know, we weren't regrouping and continuing on. It was kind of like a this moment of time still different scenario than it was for La Raza. And that was 10 years before that. So that was a long time. You guys have taken a long time. <laughs> I know. And I'm older because of it. <laughs> so during this very long time, you know, you know, as we mentioned, you had a lot going on. You, you, you had your, your first child. You spent part of that time in Anthrax. Did you miss Armored Saint? 
during this period? Or were you just so busy that that kind of wasn't even on your mind at that point? Because, I mean, this band obviously had, was already a major part of your life. Yeah, it'll always be a big part of my life. And, um, you know, I, I think that it was something that, you know, maybe in the back of our minds, you know, I was always thinking about, you know, Armored Saint and how, what it means to us and the sounds that, you know, work with as a group together and, you know, separate and in the distance and, and then possibly in the future, all that stuff. You know, I, I'm always going to feel a, a kinship with the guys in Saint on a personal level and, and what it means to us as a band. And now they're stronger than ever, for sure. You know, it's remarkable. I've said it many times in, in interviews, so it's starting to get maybe slightly redundant. But, you know, we go back like 50 years as people that known each other, you know, uh, certainly, you know, Joey Gonzo, Phil and myself. And then, you know, again, I always say about Jeff, Jeff came in, we met him in like 1982. And that was a long time ago. So, you know, there's always going to be that thing there that connects us. It's like being married for a long, long time. So I think that there's like, you're always going to be drawn to it. And, you know, this is just me speaking. I kind of had my own path. Joey did too. Certainly Gonzo, Phil and Jeff have had their own, you know, paths as well. How important it is to, to keep watering that plan, if you will. But maybe there's a little reliance on it and, you know, not dependency, but like reliance of like, it's there. You know, when we get to it, it'll be really cool. There's been times when we haven't gotten to it. Um, hence the reason there's been a gap. I was in another band. Joey's got multiple things going on. Um, everyone's got a different life. But when we kind of say, okay, we're, we're giving this a lot of tension, we give, it a, we give it a lot of love. And we give it like legitimate love. Yeah, yeah. So you guys made a video for the song Left Hook from Right Field, which is a great kind of combination of sports there and a good play on words. Tell, maybe tell me a, a little bit about that song and why you guys chose it to sort of, I mean, I know single probably isn't the best term to describe it, but it was kind of like put out there with a video to kind of represent the album, you know, to get people interested. I can't remember where I got that title from. I read it somewhere and I probably snagged it, but um I thought it was a cool title, you know, it's just, a, it said so much, you know, it's, uh, you know, it could be very deep. I mean, come on, it fits perfectly with times now, you know, I think it just sounded cool. And then you know, it's really kind of a play on how I see religion as it being like our club and then our club and then our club and we're the better club. We'll, res you know, we'll respect you. We'll have some tolerance to you, but we're still the better club. You know, whether it's Christianity or Islam or, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism or, you know, atheism, whatever. It's like ours is right. And I always find that to be just really perplexing because, you know, religion, it doesn't seem like it should do that. But um, just from my kind of bare bones mind and simpleton perspective, it just seems like a weird thing to say. You know, our, ours is better than yours. Ours is correct. Yours is incorrect. It kind of correlates to a couple of people I know personally who will remain unnamed. You know, that's a long, drawn-out conversation that we could have for hours. But you know, that's the the, the basic premise. And then, so we, the, I don't know whose idea. Maybe it was the director. He just said, "Let's do something with the video, and we'll kind of bring in this boxer, and and he'll be boxing all these different people, and they keep." <laughs> kicking his ass and it was like it was great and we and my wife's a casting director and she ended up casting that guy and um he was he did a great job and um, it was a cool looking video i thought it you know all in black and white and um, it was really powerful and 
uh, it's a great song and uh, it's just like become a, like one of our most popular songs at this point. And, you know, it has a great breakdown where, you know, it gets very emotional and, but it's, it has a good heavy riff and it's just powerful, a bit chorus. And I'm seeing kind of low, like the prominent vocal in the chorus is a low voice with a high voice kind of underneath it. And um, I like that because it's a little different. So yeah, it's a great song. Are there any other songs that kind of, that you're particularly proud of on, on the Low Ross album, the ones that stand out to you? Yeah, I you know um, I think there's a lot of really cool songs. Head On is is a great song. I think has this cool intro. The organ it sounds very almost churchish, but it has such a like heavy riff. I, I like I'm real proud of the lyrics on that song, and I think it's just uh, it's just a it's cool because it kind of has this mid tempo uh, part, and then it, you know when the chorus kicks in, it, it goes more upbeat. Um, great song. Uh, Loose Cannon was a really cool song, I thought, as well. The first track on the album. Um, I wrote that song about like just the way people drive like shit. I it was like, I was like, I can't take it the way people drive all the time, which is funny because, again, more now than ever, people drive terrible, especially after uh, when COVID hit and everyone was like, oh, the roads are so open. Let me drive like an absolute idiot. Um, but I was like, I can't, you know, I got to write about this. And so, you know, I kind of tried to tie it into, you know, slightly a metaphoric. So it means something else as well, not exactly direct, you know, but it, it is kind of about how the you know people driving, you know, the way it affects you in other ways, you know, not just the, your driving, but just your, your psychological way of how you are as a person it makes I, when people drive like idiots they're basically pretty selfish people is the way i see it so that's kind of you know the premise behind that i really like um you know the title track of the record Lurazo. It's, it was like a santana meets uh, mars volta vibe on that song it was cool bringing all the different instruments in it you know it just made it sound very spacey with a pheromone theremin theremin yes yeah that, yeah uh pheromone uh, <laughs> um sorry uh and then um the, the like the congas and that all that you know that kind of latin uh drumming is is really cool in it and we we did when we went out and played some shows we had the guy who actually is our who at the time was our drum tech who's um uh, a friend of ours as well his name's john saxon he played it with us so he was a gaza drum tech and then he would come out on that song and then play the congas in that part and it was really fun to play that live so that was cool i think that's a great song it kind of plays you know la raza is actually you know it's it's more associated with the the, the mexican los angeles or even you know the the movement of uh, of you know the latino not latino but the mexican heritage here mostly in LA but throughout I think the west part of you know the U.S. and you know I kind of tried to turn it on its head a little bit and you know, imply that it was about the race of the human race so that was my little kind of trying to be creative with it because um, that's what it means the race but it means the Mexican race but it but I tried to kind of like I said turn it on its head a little bit and write it about the human race and then I used a kind of an environmental uh, background behind it and I thought it's hard not to write about those things especially at that point I had both my kids were born and you know re reading things about what is the world going to be like in 30 years for these guys you know because they're little kids they're little toddlers at that point and made me think I like touching on social topics and always have now then when I look back to even songs like tribal dance and um, chemical euphoria if you will and 
um, you know, I think it was the beginning. I was like, Delirious Nomads when I kind of started thinking of different things to write about instead of, you know, March of the Saints and Mutiny on the World. And, you know, I love that stuff too, of course. But, you know, it just started the ball rolling of, of wanting to write more. I, I think there's a really cool vibe throughout La Raza. Um, sometimes I think people think of it as like our more rock album. I don't know, maybe because the cover's white, which I also thought was really cool at the time. I don't know, or maybe that's how it sounds. You know, I'm sure you've talked about this before, but I'm curious how it applies specifically to La Rasa. Coming out of this, uh, you know, as we keep talking about, because it's important to this record, this long hiatus that happened to 10 years, um, you're coming out of Anthrax. You know, when you're writing lyrics, is there, do you have a different approach with Anthrax than you did to Armored Saint? So is there like a, a, a switch that you have to flip going back to Armored Saint, or you're just John Bush and you write the same way no matter which band you're in? Well, no, I try to gravitate to the people I'm working with. I think that's important. Um, I, I think that working with Scott and Charlie and Frankie was, it, it brought out a different side to me for sure, especially the way they make music and the way they play music. Um, and it kind of affected me differently. So as a singer and then logically, I think as a writer, um, then working with Joey and, and you know, Gonzo and Phil and Jeff is a different vibe. You know, Armored Saints a little bit more, even though we're a powerful band and, you know, I would call us a metal band. I think sometimes we can lean towards being more bluesy. And, and so I try to bring out that aspect of my personality as a singer and a writer. And if I did something, you know, when I did stuff with Metal Allegiance, you know, and those guys, um, you know, at least just the one song, it, you know, it felt very crushing and that's the, the style of that song. So I felt like that's the way it should go. I didn't write the lyrics to that. Actually, I think Mark Mengi did, but I sang it and it, it did have this kind of heavy, like almost like a thrashy approach to it. And I wanted to, to go that way. So I think it's important to show off all your different uh, styles. I mean, saying has provided me a, a lot to, to choose from because we've really become much more diverse as time has gone on. And, we were willing to try different things, different styles, different musical approaches, different instruments. And I think these are all these things just kind of broaden your sound. And when it does that, it should broaden your style of writing and, and singing. Uh, obviously, Armored Saint has done two more records since La Rasa. Do you, do you feel that this record kind of got the energy, got the kind of band, the, the, the motion, the, the, the ball back rolling again for Armored Saint? Yeah, I always say that I think that the, the record that you did is a setup to also to the next record. It's the one that allows you kind of to open a door, even if it's a different door, you know, like March of the Saints to Delirious was very different, you know, and then Raising Fear to Symbol was a little more different. And then you know, certainly La Raza, I think, was a setup. It was like the, you know, the, the nice assist to, um, to win hands down, you know, and uh, to, to be able to do the things that we did with win hands down, I think probably wouldn't have been as easy to do if we didn't do what we did on La Raza. I think, again, it just kind of opened our minds a little bit saying, oh, we can try this and we can do this and let's do this. And then when you go to the next record, you're like, you feel maybe a little more confident. Okay, let's now do this. So we, cause we did that and now we can, you know, we kind of opened the door, like I said, and it makes it easier to feel confident about doing that. And then certainly when opened a big door to punching the sky. So I always say just a record is, is that that's exactly what it is. It's where you were in that time frame. You know, it's, it's your mindset then. And then as time goes by, whether it's a year or two or five or 10, 
in our case, it's been sometimes longer, you know, it, it's where you are then. And that's what your mindset is. It just is. So, yeah. All right. Well, so in conclusion here, I mean, you know, at this point, La Raza is 10, 11 years old. Is there anything you'd change about it? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that it felt right at the time. Uh, the songs, the state of mind, you know, um, we were, we're at a, as a band. We didn't tour that much on that album. We didn't play a lot of shows. You know, again, things were, lots of different stuff was going on. But, you know, we wrote these songs and made this album that I think was, you know, felt very appropriate for the time. You know, I'm proud of it. And it's, you know, it's like I said, sometimes it, when you look at the whole discography, if you will, of our, of our history, you know, people will say, oh, well, this record, you know, it was a certain way, it was a little different. But for me, I just, I just look at it as just another Saint record. It just happened to be during that time frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John, thank you so much for your time, man. That was great. Thank you. You always give the great questions and make the interview go much uh, more smoother. So thank you. Thanks, man. I, that's, I, I like to think of it as do, doing my job. Yeah, we're just, we're just conversing and that's the best part. And with that, we conclude our five-part series on the history of Metal Blade. Big thanks to Brian Slagle, Brandon Geist at Revolver, our editor, Liam Sr., and all the band members who agreed to be interviewed for the show. I've been your host, Jay Bennett, and this has been the History of Metal Blade podcast, brought to you by Vinyl Me Please and Revolver Magazine. Till next time, be good. <laughs>